Thank you for Treason by Godfrey Trees, read by Amy Zuck on Anchor from Grandma's Bookshelf. Chapter 22, Virgin Mine If there are two words together which still have power after all these years to strike a cold chill into my heart, those words are Virgin Mine. It was a little way after Kendall that we swung eastward off the high road, choosing a deeply rutted track which looked as though it were little used save by the wagons of the district. Just before turning off, we stopped some more merchants, and asked how far it was to the next town, just on the off chance that our question would reach other ears and mislead their owners. Then, after a careful glance before and behind, to make sure that there was no one within view to see us leave the road, we cantered off along the track. Miles away we could see the long wave of the Yorkshire Fells, green and gold in the full blaze of the late afternoon. We were lucky. We passed neither house nor man for nearly three miles. And then it was only a deaf old man sitting sideways on a cart horse. We knew he was deaf because he asked us if we had seen a black dog, and we had to bawl into his hairy ear before we could make him realize that we hadn't and didn't want to. Oh, he said amiably, and rolled forward on his nag. We met no one else for a couple of miles. This was just what we wanted. Lonely by-roads, where there was nobody to note our passing. Should we stop and eat this chicken? I suggested. Kit looked back over her shoulder. We'd gotten into the habit, but of course the lane behind us was as empty as usual. No, let's push on a bit. Well, I'm ravenous. I'm going to eat something as I go. I tore off the leg of the chicken and offered it to her. We ambled on with rain slack on our horses' necks, picking chicken bones with teeth and fingers. We should have to stop sometime, if only for the sake of the horses. I was watching them as anxiously as a mother watches a sick baby. If one of them went lame or got saddle-gailed, it would be a calamity. Even a cast shoe in this lonely country where smiths were few might mean a serious delay. My idea was to keep steadily on without pushing the beasts beyond their powers. Then, if our enemies did put in an unexpected appearance at some late stage of the journey, our horses would still be in reasonably good condition and always be able to put on a spurt. It was for those, their sakes that we decided to spend the night comfortably indoors instead of snatching a few hours' sleep on a fell. We came towards sunset to a tiny inn, high up on the shoulder of the mountains. It was, a woman warned us before we reached it, the last house we could hope to see before we landed down in the Yorkshire Dales on the other side. Ten miles, or maybe fifteen, she said, and from the tone of her voice it might have been fifteen hundred. The other side of the mountain was another world to her, as strange and remote as Africa and the Indies are to us. I think she thought us mad to be taking our horses over there, especially over such a stony pack-horse trail. "'but she evidently assumed we weren't quite mad enough "'to make the crossing after sunset. "'You'll be staying the night at the Wolfpack,' "'she said in her downright Lancaster way, "'and Kit, rubbing herself tenderly "'where she felt tired of horses, said, "'Aye, ma'am, we're not going to be further tonight.' "'I don't suppose the stables at the Wolfpack "'had ever laboured such two magnificent creatures as ours. "'The alewife's husband, himself a farmer, "'came to gape while we groomed them "'and made them comfortable for the night.' We spun the yarn we'd prepared, that we were delivering them to Sir Somebody Somebody at York. We chose York because we were very hazy about the towns lay opposite to us, behind the wall of mountains, and we felt that most Yorkshire roads would lead sooner or later to that city. Our host was a friendly, helpful soul, and told us the landmarks to look out for on the next day. When we got over the ridge line, there would be a choice of two dales for the descent. The left-hand one would lead us more directly towards York. We made a private mental note to take the right-hand one, which would clearly verge more to the south. 
he also warned us against quaking bogs and chasms of limestone. We assured him most politely that we had no intention of falling into either. Then the stable door was made fast, with one of his best dogs outside to give warning against horse thieves, and we went into the kitchen. The alewife was as friendly as her spouse. I think it tickled both of them to be entertaining two such young gentlemen, as they insisted on calling us. We fairly blew ourselves out with that supper. I especially remember the ham, which in those parts is pig meat, not mutton, as it usually is with us in Cumberland. There was a wonderful hot pot, and a cheese as good as mother could have made, only different, because the cheese of every valley has its own flavour, which, as a well-travelled man, can guess with his eyes shut. There were no other guests staying at the wolf pack. That night, their guest room was seldom used, I imagine, and then chiefly by small traders using the pack horse trail. But in the course of the evening, a number of men dropped in for their pints of ale. It was wonderful where they all came from. For there was no village near the wool pack, only a handful of cottages broadcast over the moor. Shaggy, unkept folks there were. There was a shepherd sitting in one corner with a great tankard, which he sipped at slowly, never speaking to anyone. Finally, he stood up, grunted something inaudible, and pushed his way out. He is more like an animal than a man. They get like that, whispered the alewife, noticing my stare, out on the hills alone, day after day, with no one to speak to, sometimes for a week at a time. They almost forget how to speak. So the men had grim faces, with white staring eyeballs like blackamoors. Others, who had made some attempt to clean themselves, had greyish skins pitted with fine blue points. Miners, said the alewife behind her hand, with a lot of them hereabouts. It's the flying cold dust gives them that pockmarked look. I noticed then how, if there was no vacant stool or settle, they squatted contentedly on their heels with their backs against the walls, and when they stood up they all had the same stooping shoulders. They got like that, I guessed, through walking in the low tunnels, which they drive into the banks of peat, to reach the coal which lies just below the surface. Virgin Mine. Take the left-hand trail just beyond Virgin Mine. That's what the man told us. I suppose it was called that in honour of the Queen. It was a colliery where those men worked, and I heard the name often on their lips that night. It held no tears for me then. It was a friendly, pretty name, pointing our way across the mountains to the comparative safety of the Great North Road. We slept soundly that night. I would have slept far into the morning if the alewife hadn't roused us, faithful to the instructions we'd given her, at the first peep of dawn above the moor. We breakfasted quietly on the porridge and mutton, paid our reckoning with the rose noble, and rode off, our saddlebags well packed with food for the journey. Remember, she caused it after us, from the low doorway, look out for virgin mine. It was a grey morning. The early scarlet had soon faded into the easter sky, and massive clouds were piled up to hide the sun. It was fine, though. The pack-horse road was a mere ribbon of peaty mud, worming its way past mounds of heather and reedy scummy pools. We had to go on single file, which made talking almost impossible, apart from the occasional remarks shouted over my shoulder and snatched away again by the wind. A sinister spot, if ever there was one. I sometimes wondered afterwards if Shakespeare thought of it, as we had pictured it for him, when he wrote of that heath on Macbeth. It wouldn't have surprised me at all if we had met three witches, though morning isn't usually the time for witches to be about. It was lucky we didn't meet any, for we'd changed our rose noble, and I don't think a mixed handful of silver and copper is any protection against the evil eye. It wasn't very long before we saw the colliery lying in a hollow of the moor, just aside from the track. Small black openings yawned in the hillside, and now and again you'd see half-naked grimy creature creep in and out. 
for all the world like a beetle at his hole. The coal came out in baskets, and they loaded it on sledges to be dragged down into the dales. Two men were digging on the surface itself, for here the coal measure came slanting right up, with only the thinnest covering of soil above it. A husky giant of a man, who seemed to be directing the work, yelled to us from the side of the road to ask if we'd seen any men as we rode along. "'Not a soul,' I said. "'They haven't any souls,' said the foreman with a bitter humour. "'Soul under the devil a while back. "'You mean you ha didn't see a man at all, "'not even the one with the flaming red hair you could warm your hands at?' "'Sorry,' I said. Oh, "'I think that one was at the wolf pack last night,' said Kit. "'Very likely drunk again, I suppose. "'Good day to you.' "'He turned away and began, swearing horribly, "'to urge his men to greater efforts. "'We rode on. "'Turning in about a mile, I said, "'we must watch for it. "'And the pothole, they said we'd pass that first. "'We crossed a ridge which hid the mines from view, "'and saw in front of us a certain drawing a part of the hills, "'which suggested that the dales, "'though not yet visible to us, "'were beginning to form themselves between the heights.' We soon saw the pothole, a kind of pit in the earth, ten yards to the left of the track. Its sides were of grey limestone, with the edges all fringed with beautiful mosses and clusters of heatherbell. Pretty, said Kit, and we both dismounted and led our horses closer. They seemed reluctant to come. Pretty, I echoed. Think so. I picked up a loose stone and tossed it down. There was complete silence while I counted. One, two, three... Full. Then there was a tiny faraway plonk as the stone struck water. Kit shuddered. Let's be getting on. We remounted, but we'd barely been riding a minute when a strange thing happened. I was in front, as usual, and I could have sworn that there was no living thing larger than a bird between us and the horizon. I turned my head to call something to Kit, and when I looked again, there were four men standing across the track just ahead. They made no effort to get out of our way. "'Half a moment, lad,' called one of them, flinging up his arm, "'and I saw that it was the fellow with the mane of filthy red hair "'who had been one of the company at the wool-pack last night. "'We'd heard plenty about miners on our journey from Tom Boyd. "'Why the alewife and her husband hadn't added a warning about them to the other advice, "'I don't know, unless it was that, depending on them for so much of their trade, "'they did not care to speak against them. "'When I saw Redhead blocking our path, I needed no further warning.' "'Look out!' I yelled to Kit. "'Ride round!' I set the example by swinging the roan sharply to the right, but the men had chosen the spot for their ambush very skilfully out of their deep knowledge of the moor. There was a scummy morass on the left hand of the track, which, as I had seen at a glance, was quite impassable to a horse, though a man could no doubt have waded through it. On the other side, the ground was rough and hummocky, with the rivulet winding out of the morass between deep peaty banks. The roan floundered. He struggled gamely. With time and without interference we should have got by. As it was, the red mane appeared suddenly beside me, an immense bare arm shot out to grasp the bridle. I had drawn our precious pistol and cocked it. I fired now, but it was like shooting from a seesaw or a swing. From what Redhead shouted, I fancy I grazed his shoulder and hurt him considerably, but I didn't succeed in disabling him. He still held tight to the rearing horse, while with his other arm he clasped me around the waist, with a great bear hug, and lifted me clean out of the saddle. But Kit was through. Quick-witted, and with a natural prejudice against doing what I told her, she'd ignored my advice to ride round. Instead, she dug her heels into the surprised mare, and shot into those miners like a skittle-ball, hurling them right and left. Then, reining in on the other side, at a safe distance, she looked round for me. 
Right on, I bawled before my captor extinguished me with a foul hand across my mouth. Again, Kit ignored my advice. She argued afterward that there was no help she could hope to fetch, and in those circumstances she wasn't going to leave me. That the fate of England might hang on it did not occur to her. I am flattered to know that, for the moment, she was thinking more of my fate. So she rode back. Heroine or idiot? I don't know. I suppose she thought that if she'd knocked them flying once, she could knock them flying again. The black mare came thundering down all right, but this time something quite different must have happened. Because before she knew what had happened, or what had stopped her, Kit found herself breathing breathlessly on her own two feet, with her arm twisted behind her back in a grip which allowed no f room for argument. I looked at her dismally. I was held in a similar grasp myself, and I knew it was useless to lash out at the man's shins or flail the ale with my free arm. "'What do you want?' I gasped indignantly, though it was only too clear. Redhead had scattered our money on the ground and was sorting it into four neat piles. Arithmetic was not his strong point, and he shuffled the coins several times before he could divide them to his satisfactions. "'Let's put this now,' he growled. "'You got more!' one of his friends accused him. "'Course I got more. Whose notion was it? Sides, I got shot at and wounded.' He patted his shoulder gingerly. A crimson stain had certainly joined the numerous other stains on his ragged shirt. "'No sense in quarreling over the money,' said the man who was holding me. "'There'll be plenty for all when we sell the horses, and them saddle ought to fetch something.' "'What about the lads?' asked someone. Redhead smiled slowly and looked round at the others, as if to take their opinions first. "'Take away the popcorn and let them go,' suggested Kit's captor. "'They can't hurt us.' "'Tie them up first. It'll take them some time to get free. "'Best be on the safe side.' Redhead chuckled. "'You're right, Jack. Best be on the safe side. "'Always a careful one. Well, so am I. "'I don't mean to swing for horse-stealing, and I say let's be on the safest side of all.' "'It was all too clear what that meant.' For the next ten minutes we had to stand there, facing each other in blank despair and listening to their long wrangle. Was it safe to let us go, carrying our story to the sheriff? If not, and we had to be quieted, how could it best be done? I supposed I ought to say this for their miners. None of them seemed to fancy the task of slitting our throats. No need, no need at all, said Redhead jovially. Not when there's a nice little handy hole all back there along the road. There was a rather shocking silence at this, and I saw that the other men avoided my eyes. "'What could be neater?' went on Redhead, feeling his grey shoulder again. There was an angry twinkle in his eyes, which was small like a bull's. "'We bury the boys without having to harm a hair on their heads. We scarcely need to hang, lay a finger on them. Just a gentle push, like you might give your mite in fun. And there you are. And there they are, you might say.' No fuss, no questions, no corner. As for the nags, well, if anyone asks about them, we found them straying on the fells, and we took charge of them because we felt afraid something might have happened to their owners. He was a persuasive man, redhead a bone leader, and he soon won his friends to his plan. I opened my lips to speak, to make all sorts of promises and pleadings, and tell them that Kit was a girl, but I caught a warning look in her eyes and knew that she was forbidding me to say it. After that, there was nothing to do but to pray silently for some miracle. "'Come on,' said Redhead. "'Jack, you walk along in front a bit and watch out, just in case one of these peddlers come along when we don't want him.' We waited a moment, then started behind him. Redhead held a bridle in each fist. The other two men brought up the rear. 
fog marching us behind the tails of our own horses. "'You shouldn't have come back,' I muttered. "'Was it anything else I could do?' she said. And then she added, "'Do you think... do you think it'll hurt us much?' I tried to comfort her. She said afterwards I talked with <laughs> as much assurance as if I'd been throwing down potholes at a regular part of my education. I talked desperately. Talking helped. It saved us from thinking quite so much. We trudged on in the grip of our captors. I can still remember every detail of that brief walk. I can still see in my mind's eyes the glossy hindquarters of the roan in front of me, swinging rhythmically as one leg stepped past the other. I could see the coarse tail swishing, the neat hooves coming down so daintily, leaving each time a perfect print in the soil. I could see the eagle, which sailed majestically along the steel-gray sky. Look, I said, an eagle. Yes, said Kit. We still couldn't realize somehow that our lives were over, and nothing like that mattered any more. I remember where some blocks of limestone came cropping out of the grass, carved into strange shapes by the wind and rain. They told me that we were now within a hundred yards of the pothole, just over this next hump down in the dip beyond. It was then we heard the minor Jack, who had gone in front, riding towards us and shouting to Redhead. We could see nothing ourselves, for the horses blocked our view, but we could plainly hear what he said. "'Look out! Someone's coming! A whole party of men on horseback!' "'How near?' Redhead demanded. "'Just back there and riding fast. Come on, we'd best run for it!' "'Run for it!' said Redhead, scrambling on to the mare. He jerked his head round savagely and turned her off onto the open moor. Jack mounted the roan and galloped after him. Seeing themselves deserted, our two captors let go and went racing helter-skelter on the track of their friends. "'Thank God,' said Kit Wickley. "'The miracle had happened. "'We heard other voices, faint in the distance, crying, "'Stop! "'We heard the faint pistol and the whine of bullets.' Then came the rumble of hooves as our unknown rescuers galloped near. The joy was quickly dashed. Look, I groaned as the first horseman came over the skyline. Sir Philip! 